She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I am your host, Sarah Gorski, and today we are continuing our series on women they called witches, one of my favorite topics. We started the whole series with a revisit to our episode on Half-Hanged Mary, the woman who was tried twice for witchcraft, hanged and survived that hanging. It is an incredible story. And then we took a deep dive last week into the Salem witch trials and the real story of why they happened, what was behind all of those accusations, and how such incredulous accusations could lead to guilty verdicts and the execution of 19 people. If you have always wondered about what was the real deal in Salem, you should Definitely check out that episode. I don't want to spoil it, but I kid you not, in the week since that episode aired, I've talked to like 10 different friends and of course casually mentioned the episode like you do when you run a podcast. And people's minds have been literally blown by the the truth of the whole situation, which hasn't really been as widely publicized as I would have thought. So check that out. That was last week's episode. But today... I am jumping in the time machine, and I'm going to take you all the way back to one of the very first accusations of, quote, witchcraft in documented history. We are going all the way back to 355 CE, Common Era, formerly known as AD, if you're as old as I am. And this story takes place in Alexandria. That is in Egypt, the very tippy top of the northeast corner of the African continent. And this story takes place about a hundred years before the fall of Rome. So Rome is already kind of in decline at this point. And it's a really crazy time period. It is believed that the Library of Alexandria burned, you know, the very famous burning of the Library of Alexandria, about a hundred years or maybe even 200 years before this time period. There's a weird fact I learned in research, which is that the library actually partially burned a couple of times. For some reason, what I remembered from history class was that there was one big fire that burned everything, but that was not the case that I found in this research uh, for this broad. Uh, There were a bunch of little fires and things were lost bit by bit, but by the point this broad was alive, the Library of Alexandria was already gone. The other important context that we need to tell her story is there's a lot of religious upheaval going on in Alexandria and in the whole Roman Empire, really. When Christianity first came into the picture, Christians were victimized mercilessly. Like we're talking fed them to the lions mercilessly. But rather quickly, Christianity becomes more popular and it's accepted more widely. And in 313, so that's about 75-ish years before this story, actually probably more like 100 years before the story, Roman Emperor Constantine legalizes Christianity. But just because it's legal now doesn't actually mean it's peaceful. 
So now what we have in this time period is there's all these factions of Christians and Jews and pagans all bickering amongst themselves, not just about religious beliefs, but also political power because the politics and the religion are very intertwined. I do want to take a second here to talk about that word pagan. In this time period, pagan is kind of a catch-all word. If you weren't a Jew or a Christian, you were a pagan. And most pagans are polytheists. They worship more than one god. And for I was thinking about what is the modern pop culture context for that. And I and I kept thinking of Game of Thrones. And if you remember in Game of Thrones, you had the more traditional seven, the seven that Catelyn Stark worshipped, mo- the mother, the father, the stranger. And then you had the new hip Lord of Light, right? And so th- th- that's kind of the, the deal with the, the old pagans and then these new monotheists, Christians and Jews. So that is the religious context and political context. And into this maelstrom enters our broad, Hypatia. She's our broad today. Have you heard of her? She is certainly one of the most famous broads of her century and even maybe the entire era. If you read around a little on her, if you Google, you're going to see a lot of historians mark her as one of the smartest individuals in the whole empire. One of her former students described her as, quote, the last Hellenic intellectual. The Hellenic period being the the peak Grecian influence on science and the arts. Lots of foundational works of science, math, philosophy emerged from this time period, including Stoicism and Epicureanism and Pyrrhonism and Euclid and Archimedes and all their fancy math shit all came out of that Hellenic period, and Hypatia is widely considered the last of these great minds. She was a mathematician, an astronomer, a philosopher, and above all, she was an absolutely brilliant teacher. Some sources you'll see will say Hypatia was the first female mathematician in recorded history. That isn't actually true. She was preceded by another cool broad named Pandrosian, who is definitely now on my list for future broads to cover. There's also a huge focus on history books about her being very mathematics focused, but that also isn't necessarily true. The reason some people think that uh, is for a long time, the existing written evidence of her publications all happened to be mathematics. But they now know that all her original writing was destroyed for bullshit reasons we'll get into shortly. And she likely wrote about much more. And there's certainly evidence of her teaching a wide variety of topics and especially philosophy. She was known to wear this robe called a tribun or tribone. I don't know how you pronounce it in in Greek. I don't speak Greek. But it was a robe that was made of really poor, crappy cloth. And all of these revered philosophers wore it because it signified the philosopher's detachment from material things. And when Hypatia wasn't teaching, she would be walking around the streets of Alexandria and she would debate philosophy with random people on the street. 
Quote, donning the robe of a scholar, the lady made appearances around the center of the city, expounding in public to those willing to listen on Plato or Aristotle. Only the best of the best philosophers did shit like that. Now, before I move forward, let's fill in a few gaps from her early life. Hypatia was likely born between 350 and 370 CE. We literally do not know the exact date due to all of the lost records around her. Uh, We also literally know nothing about Hypatia's mother. There is no reference to her in any writings or official documents of that time period. There is a slight chance that she had a brother. There was a written reference to one in some literature, but there was kind of only one reference, which also makes that seem less likely to be true. But Hypatia's dad, we do know about. His name was Theon, and he was a very respected mathematician who was the head of this very prestigious school named the Museon, supposedly a precursor to the word museum, right? Museon. Um, And he was also very famous for being a Neoplatonist. That sounds like an ice cream flavor, but it's not. It is a philosophical belief. And I... (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you. I tried to research and distill Neoplatonism to you so that I could try to explain it to you. But philosophy is by far my most difficult subject for me personally. And the more I read about it, the more confusing it is. And I don't even feel like I should try to explain it to you because I don't feel like I'm going to get it right. So I'm just going to say that Theon and Hypatia were both avid believers of this philosophy and this philosophy being not christian and jewish meant that it was pagan however as a teacher hypatia taught jews christians and pagans all equally she did not get involved with the religious politics and the power plays of the time she just wanted everyone to get along and live in peace there's supposedly one incident in her classroom where Two of her students were fighting. One was a Jew and one was a Christian. And Hypatia breaks up the fight with a mathematical reference, saying something like, If you and I are alike, and he and I are alike, then you both are alike to each other. And it worked, and the fight broke up. So what was Hypatia like as a person? Well, we can derive this from a couple different writings about her. The historian Socrates of Constantinople, which is not the Socrates, he's a a different Socrates, described Hypatia as thus, quote, There was a woman at Alexandria named Hypatia, daughter of the philosopher Theon, who made such attainments in literature and science as to far surpass all the philosophers of her own time. Having succeeded to the school of Plato and Plotinus, she explained the principles of philosophy to her auditors, many of whom came from a distance to receive her instructions. On account of the self-possession and ease of manner which she had acquired in consequence of the cultivation of her mind, she not infrequently appeared in public in the presence of the magistrates. Neither did she feel abashed in going to an assembly of men, for all the men on account of her extraordinary dignity and virtue admired her the more. End quote. Her former pupil, 
Synesius described Hypatia as, quote, a person so renowned, her reputation seemed literally incredible. We have seen and heard for ourselves she who honorably presides over the mysteries of philosophy, end quote. Hypatia is also widely known to have been very beautiful. Damasius writes that Hypatia was, quote, exceedingly beautiful and fair of form. And she was also never married. She led a, quote, virtuous existence, meaning that she was a virgin. Most of the sources that I read connected that life path with that of her philosophy and her philosophical beliefs. And as a big-time philosopher, she was less tied to earthly pursuits and material things, including traditional structures like family, gender, even love. And while I'm sure as a prominent leading woman of her time in a near total male-dominated world, I'm sure she suffered a lot of annoying patriarchal bullshit. But it seems to me, uh, in the research I did at least, that more than anything, her philosophical beliefs just transcended all of that entirely. And she was not interested in love at all. It was a distraction from all the other really important work she was doing. Men, of course, fawned over her anyway, and many of her students fell in love with her, and they would profess their feelings to her. Uh, And there's a very famous, one of her more famous stories, uh, in which one of her students falls madly in love with her. And when he confesses his love for her, first she tells him, you need to go find comfort in the great muse of music thinking that that would calm him down if he went and played the lute or whatever. However, the dude does not calm down, and he continues to doggedly pursue her, and she's so annoyed with this whole fiasco that she reaches under her robes, and she pulls out her menstrual rags and throws them at this guy, saying, quote, You love this, O youth, and there is nothing beautiful about it, end quote. Now, there are a lot of theories about what exactly she meant when she said that quote. Uh, A bunch of articles were like, oh, she hated herself, Um, and she hated her body, and she thought she was ugly. And I'm reading all these articles, and my eyes almost rolled all the way back into my head, because all of those reasonings seemed dumb as hell for one of the smartest women that ever lived. I'll just say this. I'll say that A, probably those were not her exact words. The source for that text was written after she had died already, so it could be pure conjecture. Who fucking knows? B, if she said something like that, it seems more likely to me to be a statement on physical attraction being so far below intellectual and philosophical thought that that guy was clearly just an idiot. Um, But also C, it's more like the whole action of throwing your period rags at a dude that I find wholly inspired and apparently it worked because the dude backed down and he left her alone after that he was brought back to his senses i think is what the the quote was in in the sources i was reading hypatia was a true marvel of her time she of course got her educational start under her father but she quickly uh quickly exceeded his skill level in fact some sources say it's possible that theon her dad's greatest publication which was essentially just a rewrite of one of euclid's works was actually probably the work of hypatia instead her star really ascended to the top ranks of educators and eventually she becomes the headmaster of the alexandrian school 
She taught and published and she walked the streets debating philosophy. And as she got a little bit older, local leaders would go to her for advice and people would travel long distances to seek out her wisdom. And she was pretty much this beacon of shining light intellectually and the most revered and respected woman probably in the entire world, definitely in Alexandria, but probably the whole world in this time period. However, that is not why she is famous. She is famous because of the way her life ends. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned all the religious tensions and the power plays in the time period. And although Hypatia did not participate in one side versus the other, due to her wise, elevated status, her advice was sought after by many folks that were involved in all those politics. And in particular, one of her former students and very close friends was Orestes. And he was the Roman prefect of Alexandria. I kind of think of that position, Roman prefect, as like the senator or congressman. He's like the rep. He's like the rep from Rome, right? But at the same time, the local power was really in the hands of the bishop of Alexandria, a Christian. the, The OG bishop was named Theophilus. And even though Theophilus had demolished one of the pagan temples, and he knew Hypatia was a pagan. He also knew that she was a genius and he respected her and he kind of left her in her school alone. And they didn't really, Hypatia never really had to worry about it. But when Theophilus dies suddenly, his big douchebag nephew, Cyril, who later, by the way, is sainted. I like to say that. I like to talk about the misappropriation of sainthood on this podcast. Cyril takes over this position. It was contested, by the way. He had to shed blood to lock it down. And the tensions in the city are kind of berserk. And there is a big massacre that happens of Christians at the hands of the Jews. And in response, Cyril lets heads roll and he closes a bunch of synagogues and he exiles all the participants in the massacre. And Orestes is watching all this and he sends his report back to the Roman emperor and it's a very bad report because things are very bad right now in the city. And Cyril is livid, more livid than he already was. And he's got this group of clerics that serve as like his kind of personal mafia of sorts called the Parabolani. And these guys supposedly start a riot. And in the midst of this riot, they try to kill Orestes in the street And in retaliation, Orestes kills in public, I believe he tortures the monk who started the riot. And Cyril is madder and madder, and this goes back and forth, all this fighting. Meanwhile, Orestes continues to go to his good friend Hypatia for advice on how to handle this really difficult situation. After all, she is well-beloved of both Christian and pagans, everybody in the city loves her. And she's been pretty neutral this whole time. She has not taken sides, even when some of her students, or previous students who are now kind of grown-ass men, ask her to get involved. She doesn't get involved. But bloodlust, as we know in history, knows no boundaries. And Cyril and his crew start spreading these vicious rumors about Hypatia, 
about what was really going on in her conversations with Orestes, that she was actually the one preventing peace between Orestes and Cyril, and that she was under the devil's influence. Some crazy shit. And even though it was just bad rumors and nothing more, that was enough for these bloodthirsty Christians. And one night, while Hypatia's on her way home, the Parabolani pull her out of her carriage onto the street and they drag her to a nearby church. This is where I um, give you guys a content warning. The next couple seconds are not pretty. Please skip forward if you're sensitive to violence. So they take her into the church and they strip her naked. And since they don't have real weapons on them, they beat her to death either with roof tiles or they skin her alive with oyster shells. Literally, the translation could be either roof tiles or oyster shells, and we don't really know, and both are horrific. And in some versions of the story, they also scoop out her eyeballs, and they dismember her, and they burn her limbs, and they carry her burnt limbs outside the city to clear the city of her great evil. And this brutal murder is the reason that Hypatia appears in our history books. And of course, these same fine folks also burn her writings and try to kind of erase her out of history, leaving us with only a few sources, and mostly secondhand sources, people that wrote about her and not her, not her own writings. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, why the fuck is Hypatia associated with witches? Because everything I just described just then had very little, if not nothing, to do with witches. And that is a great question, and one that I shared with you. Because if you Google the first witch, her name shows up. So it turns out that 200 years after her death, this guy named John of Nikiu writes about Hypatia and her death. And he corroborates a bunch of the main facts about her story, but he also adds in a lot of text about her, quote, satanic wiles and her devotion to, quote, magic, astrolabes, and instruments of music. And he also says that she had, quote, beguiled Orestes through her magic, end quote. So... He characterized the mob lynching as this glorious eradication of the the last remaining idolatry in Alexandria. And you hear these phrases and like, it seems like this is a writer that has his own political agenda entirely. This is 200 years after her death. Uh, But that publication that he made is what made other historians jump on to this witch train and call Hypatia a witch. And I, I believe it really is one of the very first texts that talks about witchcraft in, in written history. It really also nicely correlates with the newly established Christian faith of that time period. And it's kind of the beginning of like people who aren't Christian must be witches. People who are pagans are witches. Anyway, Hypatia's murder is 
a huge turning point in Alexandria's history. The general population of the city, remember, she was beloved. The, the Christians were blood, bloodthirsty. The, that particular group of them were. Uh, but the general population adored her, and they are shocked, and they are deeply shaken by her death. And up until that point, philosophers and other intellectuals kind of had this bubble of safety around them. So long as they kind of kept their heads down and didn't get involved with the politics, it seemed like they were never the targets. They were always relatively safe. But now, after Hypatia's death, they became targets of the mob. And not surprisingly, a whole bunch of people convert pretty quickly to Christianity. And they also pretty quickly forget Hypatia's name. This moment in time is, it's considered kind of the end of this golden age of enlightenment and more or less the beginning of the dark ages. Well, guys, that's all I've got for you today on Hypatia. As with all the broads, I always encourage you to read more about her. I totally glossed over some of her specific achievements, things she's credited with, there were so many. She was an astounding mind that stood out in a time with a lot of other big brainy people. And while it turns out that she most definitely was not a witch, she most certainly is a broad that we should know. To learn more about Hypatia, see some artistic renderings of her and some of those great quotes from this episode, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page and read more about me, my bio, picture, links to my cool stuff, my social, all right there. Speaking of social, are you following Broads You Should Know? We are on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad for future episodes, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. If you're a fan of this podcast, do me a favor help spread the word by sharing an episode with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really were interested in Hypatia's story, then I highly recommend you check out a few of our previous episodes, most especially our other witch episodes, Half-Hanged Mary, the Salem Witch Trials, and of course the Night Witches. They were not witch witches, but they did turn the tide of World War II. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know.